So we're continuing on and finishing up our series in Psalm 67, a series on uh, global missions, and um, we've taken this in, in three parts. The first week we saw the, the motivation for missions, which is God's blessing. Uh, last week we saw the goal of missions, which is the glory of God, God being glorified and enjoyed by all the peoples of the earth. And this week uh, we are finishing up in verses 6 and 7, seeing the, the certainty of missions, which is this, this great end-time harvest, this great in-gathering of all the peoples and nations and tribes of the earth into the kingdom of God to the fear and reverence and worship of the living God. And, and as we've been doing, we've been taking a, a sort of missionary story, a missionary biography, and and using that as a, a, a sort of reservoir for illustrations and quotes and, and whatnot. And um, the first week we did that with Lottie Moon. Last week we did that with David Brainerd. And uh, this morning we're going to be doing that with Adoniram Judson. Um, so before we get into the text, if you'd like to uh, pray with me, and then we'll look at Psalm 67, verses 6 and 7. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for this time together. Thank you for rescuing us from Satan and sin and eternal death and rescuing us into uh, salvation, forgiveness, eternal life with you and your people forevermore, a life of glorifying you and enjoying you forevermore, which was the chief end, the purpose for which we were created. And we pray that as we look at Psalm 67 and finish up the psalm this morning, that you would so ignite our hearts with a passion for the purpose of knowing you and making you known in the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, Psalm 67. We'll read the whole psalm, but we're looking this morning particularly at verses 6 and 7. Let's listen with reverence and joy to the word of our God. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, Selah. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Well, Adoniram Judson was born August 9, 1788 in Malden, Massachusetts. He died April 12, 1850 at sea somewhere in the Bay of Bengal. He died April, uh, April 12, 1850. Uh, you'll often hear uh, reference to Adoniram's three wives. Um, he wasn't a polygamist, though. Uh, he married Anne Hasseltine, who died in the mission field in 1826. After her death, he married Sarah Boardman, who died in 1845 on the mission field. And then lastly, he married 
Emily Chubbuck, who outlived Adoniram by just four years. Uh, He is often hailed as the first Baptist missionary sent overseas from American soil. Uh, That's not true. However, the first Baptist missionary sent overseas from American soil was a man by the name of uh, George Lyle. He's a black uh, Baptist minister sent to Jamaica. Uh, Still, Adoniram was a, a, a pioneer in the mission's cause in the United States. He sought to go to India. He ended up going to Burma, which is modern day Myanmar, and he compelled many others to do the same, not to Burma, but all over the world, really. Uh, Adoniram grew up in uh, a pastor's house. His father was a Congregationalist minister. He was a very serious, very devout man. Uh, Adoniram, though, however, at an early age, uh, had his share of doubts concerning Christianity, spurred on by the, the death of his baby sister, Mary. Adoniram, though, was, he was brilliant. Uh, he had a towering intellect. His family, his teachers, his friends, his classmates, and, and uh, uh, many others saw that Adoniram was extremely gifted, and I think it's safe to say that he himself knew it as well. Uh, at the age of 16, he went off to college at Brown University, where he graduated valedictorian. Uh, while there, he met another young man, a brilliant young man, who would graduate second in their class, a man by the name of Jacob Eames. Adoniram adored Jacob Eames. They took up together quite naturally. And Jacob Eames was a deist. A deist deist is someone um, who believes that there is a God, uh, but that he sort of created us and the universe and everything in it, and then kind of stepped back to let things kind of go on on their own, stopped uh, intervening in the world and, and, and the happenings therein. Uh, Deists see God, the famous uh, illustration says, uh, like, a, like a clockmaker. He simply created things to sort of tick on their own, and then he stepped back and, and let it go on. Um, and Adoniram found Jacob Eames's deism to be incredibly compelling. He himself became a deist while at college, and uh, he kept it a secret from his parents. After graduating college, Adoniram went back home. He started a local school and was a teacher there. He was incredibly ambitious, though, and, and that didn't really satisfy him. He, uh, he had dreams of being a playwright in New York City. He had dreams of being a politician in D.C. He had dreams, many more dreams. He wanted to do a lot with his life. And one night, uh, in an argument with his parents, uh, Adoniram told them that he was a deist, he rejected his father's God, and that he was leaving home and running off to New York City. And it broke their hearts, but Adoniram left. He went to New York, tried to become a playwright, but was not successful. And after several months of sleeping in flea-infested beds, having to steal to eat, being disgusted by the immorality of his group of friends there, Adoniram left. He wasn't sure where he was going to go, but he just had to go. So he set off, traveling back from New York, Adoniram met with a a series of startling providences, which we'll, we'll explore a little bit. Uh, a little later on, but suffice it to say, much to his surprise, Adoniram began to wrestle with the reality of Christianity during his travels. He felt that he desired Christianity to be true. He desired to have the assurance, the sense of purpose, the sense of peace that, that he saw in others and that came from Christianity, but he just felt that he couldn't quite buy into it. And so he did the only thing he knew to do. He went home. In an additional 
Startling providence met him there. A group of pastors and scholars from around the country were there meeting with his father. They were starting a new seminary in Massachusetts called Andover Seminary. And Adoniram saw there being there's a chance to get his questions answered. And so he, he badgered these pastor scholars with, with questions about Christianity. They, they talked and talked and talked several nights in a row, late into the night. And while Adoniram's questions were not all answered in that week, he did get an opportunity to explore his questions more deeply. The men invited Adoniram to the seminary, not as a pastor in training, but simply as a chance to study and explore Christianity in an effort to to find his answers to these questions. And so sometime later, he packed up and he went, moved to Andover Seminary. And while there, Adoniram began to find Christianity compelling. While there, he eventually trusted in Christ. Almost immediately, went back home to talk with his parents who were overjoyed at the news. And then Adoniram went back to Andover, not to explore this time, but to be trained as a minister. His ambitions, however, were, were still very high. Even after his conversion, his towering intellect enabled him to, to graduate rather quickly. And it was expected by all that Adoniram become a, a congregationalist minister like his father. And because of his, his giftedness, everyone knew the sky was the limit for this man. And just prior to his graduation, he was offered a position of becoming an associate pastor at Park Street Church in Boston, one of the most successful and best-known churches in, in the U.S. at that time. His parents, again, were overjoyed at the news. His father was so proud. His mother cried tears of joy. And yet, Adoniram broke their hearts again. And it's time for a very different reason. Adoniram told them, I will never live in Boston. I have so much farther to go than that. You see, while at Andover, Adoniram had begun to see in the scriptures this call laid on God's people to go. He had seen that God's great plan was for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to be gathered in to revere and trust in Christ. And he also saw that by and large, the church in America was not living in light of this call. They were not concerned with the salvation of unreached and unengaged peoples. And because of this, he vowed not to stay stateside. He vowed not to pastor a church here as amiable and as comfortable as that might have been for him. He vowed to go to the ends of the earth, armed with nothing but the gospel of Jesus Christ, to participate in this great salvation harvest that the Lord has planned. And it's to this great salvation harvest that we turn our attention to now. In our final sermon, Psalm 67, we come to verses 6 and 7. And verses 6 and 7 show us that a time is coming when people from all nations will be gathered will be gathered into the kingdom of God. A time is coming when people from all nations will be gathered into the kingdom of God. And we're going to unpack that by looking first at a point of explanation and then two points of application. The first, uh, the, the, the point of explanation, the certain harvest, the certain harvest that is coming. And then we'll look at the laborers needed and the risk required. Certain harvest, the laborers needed and the risk required required. But first, we need to to look at our text. The explanation of our text is certain harvest. Up to this point in Psalm 67, we've been largely dealing with a series of requests and pleas, pleas for God's blessing to be poured out, for his way and salvation to be known in the earth, for the universal praise of his glory 
But here, the psalmist doesn't request anything. Instead, he makes a simple statement of fact, a simple observation. The earth has yielded its increase. The earth has yielded its increase. He's speaking of a future event as an accomplished fact. And the future event is the great ingathering of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue into the kingdom of God. And he's speaking of that great ingathering of the lost elect with an agricultural metaphor, the metaphor of a harvest. And, and, and he treats this great salvation harvest as an accomplished reality because the psalmist has utter confidence in God's promises and in his providence to carry out and fulfill his promises. The psalmist is absolutely certain that God will bless his people in their labors to declare the gospel to all nations. And of course, on this side of the coming of Christ, we know that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. The kingdom of the living God has come in Christ. He has died a death on the cross in the place of a people from every nation. And his death on that cross was effectual. It was an effective atonement. It will not be for nothing that Christ died. Christ's death will accomplish what he set out to accomplish. The nations will hear and believe. The peoples will be gathered in. God's great salvation harvest will be accomplished. And we know this because of the guarantee given in Christ's resurrection. Three days after his death, Christ rose from the dead in utter victory over Satan, sin, and death. And before he ascended into heaven, he gave his people a great commission to go to every nation of the earth, declaring the truth of who Christ is and what he's done. And with it, he's given his guarantee that this great harvest will be successful because his sovereign reign extends over all of heaven and earth. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the risen and ascended Lord Jesus. And the psalmist goes on to express his certainty. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Again, we return to this theme of blessing that we saw in verses 1 and 2. If you'll remember, the blessing referred to here is the blessing of God's saving pardon and his favorable presence coming in the Lord Jesus Christ. His grace and his shining face are guaranteed by the psalmist here. He truly believes that by God's grace, all nations will be gathered in to receive the blessing of God's shining face. As pastor scholar Richard Phillips says about this very verse, he says, this is our confidence in spreading the gospel. Not confidence in our zeal or presentation skills or persuasive passion, and certainly not reliance on worldly appeals and manipulation, but God's sovereign blessing on his harvest so that his saving power attends to the preaching and reading of his word. A harvest never rises from the ground by itself, but always relies on God's blessing. The harvest is certain because God's blessing is certain. Adoniram Judson knew this to be a fact because he experienced this in his own life. In his own life, he had experienced God's startling providence and absolute sovereignty in his salvation and harvest of his own soul. I briefly mentioned these providences just a, a few moments ago, but while, while Adoniram was traveling back from New York City, during his travels, uh, Adoniram stopped by his uncle's house on his way out of the city. His uncle was a pastor as well and uh, had a parsonage that the church provided for them on, on church property. 
And Adoniram had left his horse there and was stopping by for the night to rest and retrieve his horse. But when he arrived there, his uncle had gone on a trip. And there was another young pastor filling in for him. This young pastor invited Adoniram to stay all the same. They talked late into the night about the Christian faith, about Adoniram's questions. And this is what started Adoniram's exploration of Christianity. And nothing that the young pastor said was, was earth-shaking, and yet Adoniram saw in this pastor such confidence, such a sense of purpose and peace, something he lacked and longed for. And so he, he set out a short time later, but he set out with some new things to think about in his life. And eventually his travels took him to an inn where he thought he could get some food, stay for the night. However, when he asked the innkeeper, for a room, the innkeeper told him he didn't have any rooms except for one in which another young man was dying. And the only thing separating the two beds in the room was a thin partition. So Adoniram, in utter exhaustion and desperation, took the room. He just needed a place to sleep. He needed a place to stay for the night. But that night was horrifying to Adoniram. All night he heard the man coughing and gurgling and vomiting. And as Adoniram lay there listening to this man die, questions assaulted his mind. One biographer records the onslaught of questions. Was the man prepared to die? Where would he spend eternity? Was he a Christian calm and strong in the hope of the life of heaven? Or was he a sinner shuddering in the dark brink of the lower region? He didn't know. And he found himself in fear that he himself would one day have to face death. And he didn't know. He didn't know what would come after. And so eventually around 4 a.m., things quieted down and Adoniram thought of his friend Jacob Eames. What would Jacob say if he knew I was thinking about such nonsense? What would would he do if he knew I was entertaining such thoughts? Adoniram told himself he was being silly and he fell asleep. And just a few hours later, he was eating breakfast in the dining room, oatmeal cooked over the fire in the fireplace. The innkeeper sat down to talk with Adoniram about his stay. And while talking, Adoniram inquired about the man in his room. And the innkeeper told him that the the young man died around 4 a.m. And Adoniram asked the man's name. And the innkeeper told him it was a bright young fellow from Brown University named Jacob Eames. Adoniram stopped dead in his tracks. He was shocked at the news, and this phrase echoed in his mind that Jacob Eames was dead and that he was lost, he was lost, he was lost, lost, lost. He couldn't shake it, and and so this is what set him on the path of wrestling with Christianity once again into his eventual conversion. You see, Adoniram knew that God's providence guaranteed the great harvest of souls to come because his own soul was harvested by the ordering of God's mighty providence. He was certain and sure and confident that God would guarantee the success of the Great Commission just like the Lord guaranteed the harvest of his own soul. And just like the, the Apostle Paul was encouraged in Acts 18, 9, and 10 to go because of the certainty of the conversion of many in the city. The Lord told him, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I have many in this city who are my people. In the same way, there are lost elect all over this world, 
Adoniram knew that there were lost elect all over this world to the ends of the earth waiting to be reached with the truth of the gospel. And so he had to go. He had to go. And the psalmist, in sharing in the same certainty, closes this psalm in confidence saying, let all the ends of the earth fear him. I actually think that the CSB translation better captures the mood of this verse. In verse 7, it it translates like this. God will bless us and all the ends of the earth will fear him. It's a statement of confidence and certainty. The harvest is certain. All the ends of the earth will fear the living God. The the, the people from the 7,000 plus unreached people groups that we've discussed the last couple of weeks will one day eventually be gathered in to reverently worship the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And Adoniram got to see this fulfilled in small measure when he saw people in Burma come to him in fear of the living God. He labored in Burma for six years before seeing a single conversion. And for 18 years before seeing a good deal of fruit. He writes about that fruit in one of his letters to a fellow missionary. Listen to this description. He says, We've distributed nearly 10,000 tracts, giving to none but those who ask. I presume that there have been 6,000 applications at the house. Some come two or three months' journey from the borders of Siam and China. Sir, we hear that there is an eternal hell. We are afraid of it. Do give us a writing that will tell us how to escape it. Others come from the frontiers of Kethe, a hundred miles north of Ava. Sir, we have seen a writing that tells us about an eternal God. Are you the man that gives away such writings? If so, pray, give us one, for we want to know the truth before we die. The nations will fear the living God. They will draw near in awe of his greatness and glory and grace. They will fear him. It is an absolute certainty. The harvest is coming. And now we turn to these points of applications. First, the the, the laborers needed. And we need to guard against some faulty thinking as we explore this this certain harvest here. We see in, in Psalm 67 verses 6 and 7 that the Lord's blessing and harvest is a guarantee that all the ends of the earth will indeed fear him. But sometimes we can use God's promises and his providence as an excuse for inaction. We might reason that, well, you know, God's providence guarantees the success and certainty of the Great Commission, so he'll take care of it. I can just kind of go about my business. That's a faulty way of thinking. That's not the attitude that Scripture calls us to take. Instead, we're encouraged to see the guaranteed success of the Great Commission as an encouragement to go. There are many in this city who are my people, Paul. Go, the Lord told him. God's guaranteed success of the Great Commission beckons us to go and participate in his plans, to be the glove of his providential hand in the earth, to be the means through which he accomplishes his ends. As Jesus tells us, his disciples in, 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 in John four thirty five, he says, look, I, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He's saying, listen, I've already prepared and readied the harvest of all nations into the storehouses of God. The crop of Christians is ready to be gathered into God's kingdom. And so, verse 37, John 4, I sent you to reap. God's people are sent to reap what the Lord has prepared for his harvest. The fields are white and ready, so we must go. We must go. 
And likewise, the Lord gives a similar encouragement in Luke 10 too. In Matthew 9, 37, there he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The harvest is plentiful and ready, yet the laborers are few. And so in light of this, what are we encouraged to do? Well, first we're encouraged to to pray, to pray for laborers. We come back to this vital piece of application, pray. Adoniram Judson once said that God loves importunate prayer so much that he will not give us much blessing without it. We're called to pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. This is a universal application. Any and every time that we come to the subject of missions, not all of us are called to go. We know that. But all of us are called to pray concerning missions. But then this this application is even more narrow and pointed than that. It pertains to a certain request in prayer for missions, praying for laborers, praying for missionaries, praying for ministers, praying for those who go to go. You know, when I I encouraged our church to begin praying for three to five individuals or households to be raised up, to be sent from our church to the nations, that's not just a garrison exhortation, that's a Christ exhortation. The sovereign Lord, the risen and ascended Lord of the universe, has told us to pray for laborers to be sent out. And so I plead with you, please add this to your prayer request. Be praying for this in your city groups. Pray for this around your dinner table with your family. Pray for laborers to be sent into the harvest. Don't just, don't stop after the series is done. Continue praying for this. You might actually set a little reminder on your phone. I used to do this. My, I had a reminder on my phone uh, at 9.37 a.m. every single day for Matthew 9.37. Set, my alarm would go off, and I would be reminded to pray for laborers to be sent into the harvest. You might do the same. Pray every day, 9.37, for the Lord to raise up three to five individuals or households to be sent from our church to the nations. But then there's also a non-universal application embedded in, in Matthew 9.37 and Luke 10. All of us are called to pray All of us are called to pray for laborers to be raised up and sent into the harvest, but that also means that some of us are called to be those laborers. Some of us have to be those three to five individuals or households. Some of us need to be sent for the harvest. And there's there's another potential piece of of faulty thinking that I want us to to be protected from, and that's the, the, the guaranteed success of the Great Commission might give us the false impression that this is going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. That might give us a a triumphalist kind of mindset that makes missions out to be easy, an easy thing in our minds. Hopefully the the Lord's word, use of the word labors, dissuades us from making that mistake. The title laborer implies that there will be labor involved, that it's going to be difficult, that it will be hard, that it will require hard work. The illustration of the harvest also implies that it'll be hard, slow, difficult work. Farming's not easy from what I hear. Farming is hard work, it's patient work, it's slow work, it takes time. And we can be encouraged by this when we look at the life of of Judson. Today, the Myanmar Baptist Convention has 3,700 congregations, over 600,000 members, over a million affiliates, almost 2 million affiliates. But, But you have to know 
None of that was immediate, and some of that great fruitfulness didn't even come until after Judson was dead. None of that was accomplished without hard work and suffering. It took time for the Judsons to learn the language. It took time for them and labor for them to translate the Bible and to write tracts. It took time and labor for them to establish a new life on foreign soil. After six years, they finally saw their first convert. It took 18 years before they began to see a multitude of seekers and conversions that he wrote of in that letter that I read earlier. If you want to be a missionary, please know it's going to be hard work. You will have to learn new languages. You will have to study the scriptures. You will have to plow and plant and cultivate with the gospel. You may have to do so while working bivocationally in whatever your mission field is. You will have to face culture shock. You will have to learn a new way of life. You will have to leave family and friends and homes and jobs. It will not be easy. It will be hard. It will be slow. And yet, some of us are called to be laborers. And if you're one of them, you must go because the harvest is plentiful. The fields are white and ready to be harvested. The lost elect are there waiting. But then another potential faulty way of thinking, kind of along the same lines, is is thinking that this will be accomplished without suffering. That since God guarantees it, the harvest is certain. We might engage in in, in a kind of triumphalist way of thinking again and, and conclude that the harvest will come without suffering. But again, that would be a mistake. Look with me next. And lastly, at the risk required. There's risk required here. The gospel rarely goes forward without suffering. The gospel rarely breaks new ground without the suffering of God's people. Okay, you, you need to see that, that when we talk about the cross of Jesus Christ, we're not just talking about the means of salvation for God's people. We're not just talking about the, the means through which we receive the pardon and presence of the living God. When we talk about the cross, we're also talking about a pattern a pattern which we are to follow in the Christian life. We're talking, when we talk about the cross, we're talking about picking up our own crosses and following Jesus. We're to crucify the flesh with all of its passions and desires, and we're called to take on the suffering necessary for such a life. And this is particularly true for those called to missions. The Apostle Paul, the great missionary to the Gentiles, writes about this very thing in his own life. Colossians 1, 24 to 29. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you. I, he rejoices. Why do you rejoice in your sufferings, Paul? He says, I, I'm completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. I've become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles, that's the nations, the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that he works powerfully in me. You see, he says, he says his call to go to the Gentiles, the nation, in it, he's completing in his flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body, the church? Now, is that heresy? I, no, it's not. That's in the Bible. It's not heresy. But 
it doesn't mean that Christ's sacrifice was somehow incomplete or wanting in what it set out to accomplish. When Christ said, it is finished, it was finished. The forgiveness of sins was secured and accomplished for all who put their trust in Christ. However, what Paul is saying is that that good news rarely goes forth in the earth without the suffering of God's people. You see, the, 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 the way that the pardon and presence of God was secured for God's people is the way that the good news of it reaches God's people, namely suffering. The afflictions that were lacking for Christ's body are the sufferings of his people to take the gospel to the nations. As the great African theologian Tertullian once said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The fields are white, the harvest is plentiful. But you need to remember, we have enemies. We have a great enemy, the devil and his demonic army who are in every way opposed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ being propagated and permeated throughout the earth. Satan hates it when God's gospel reaches new peoples and he has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they're utterly opposed to the lordship of Jesus Christ apart from the grace of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. And so Satan, demons, hell, and all the world are against the gospel going forth. Because of this, the gospel will rarely go forward without the suffering of God's people. Sometimes missionaries will go to unreached people groups, and they will get sick, or their children will get sick, and they might not have access to quality medical care, and they could die. Sometimes missionaries will go to unreached people groups and the powers that be will not like it and they will arrest and they will beat and they will accuse and they will hurt those who are sent. Sometimes missionaries are killed in the field and that's true to this day. And so it's absolutely necessary that those who are sent are willing to be like Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15, 26 when it says of them that they are men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is absolutely necessary that those who go be like Paul when he says in Acts 20, 24, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. As John Piper once put it, the great commission will not get done if we are not willing to risk our lives and the life, the lives of our family. Adoniram Judson and his wives, they knew this to be true. They suffered greatly in Burma, and you can see in some of their letters prior to, to going that they expected it, that they found the risk to be worth it. In Adoniram's letter to, to Anne's father asking for a hand in marriage, you can tell he knows he's going to go, and he knows that if him and Anne get married, she's going to come with him, And that it might involve a great deal of suffering. And so he wrote this when he asked Anne's father for her hand in marriage. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, 
and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory? with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. My goodness, did his anticipations for suffering prove to be true. Earlier I mentioned that that the, the Judsons originally anticipated going to India but ended up in Burma. When they arrived in India, they, they met there with William Carey and Carey actually encouraged them to not go to Burma. Burma, as one biographer describes, was a land with anarchic despotism, fierce war with Siam, enemy raids, constant rebellion, no religious toleration. All the previous missionaries had died or left. And that's to say nothing of the heat, the cholera, the malaria, the dysentery, and more. And yet they went. In 1824, a war broke out between Burma and the English government in India. And the Judsons were suspected to be English spies. And so Adoniram was arrested and put in prison. The prison was a a small room, 40 feet by 30 feet, 5 feet high with very little ventilation. He was in that room with about 100 other people, nearly all famished, half naked. Rotting food, refuse, and human waste littered the ground. He wore 14-pound fetters on his feet, which would scar him for the rest of his life. At night, the guards would hang him by placing a bamboo stick between those fetters and lifting it up, hanging him by his feet. The mosquitoes would come and eat away at his broken flesh, nearly driving him mad. He was there for 21 months. And his wife was pregnant at the time with their third child. The first two had died. She remained fiercely loyal to her husband throughout that she would go and visit him regularly and largely could be credited with his survival. He was one of few to survive. And while he was in prison, she gave birth to their third child. A few weeks before his release in prison, Anne had stopped coming to visit him and and he feared the worst. She had been sick, malnourished, And so when he was released, he rushed home as quickly as he could. One biographer describes the scene upon his arrival. It says, one of the most pathetic pages in the history of Christian missions is that which describes the scene when Judson was finally released and returned to the mission house seeking Anne, who again had failed to visit him for some weeks. He was ambled, as he ambled down the street, as fast as his maimed ankles would permit, The torment in question kept repeating itself, is Anne still alive? Upon reaching the house, the first object to attract his his attention was a half-naked Burman woman squatting in the ashes beside a pan of coals and holding holding on her knees an emaciated baby, so begrimed with dirt that it did not occur to him that it could be his own. Across the foot of the bed, as though she had fallen there, lay a human object that at first glance was no more recognizable than his child. The face was of a ghastly paleness and the body shrunken to the last degree of emaciation. The glossy black curls, and was known for her glossy black curls, all of them had been shorn from the finely shaped head. There lay the faithful and devoted wife who had followed him so unwearily from prison to prison, 
ever alleviating his distresses and consoling him in his trials. Presently, Anne felt Adoniram's warm tears falling upon her face and rousing from her days, saw Adoniram at her side. Anne would die just a short time later, and their third child would die just six months after her. As you would expect, Adoniram was was devastated. After this, he, he wrote in a letter to a friend, God to me is a great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. And yet he went on. Of course, he would go on to lose another wife. And in total, seven of his 12 children would die there in Burma. Eventually, Adoniram developed a serious lung disease and he would die himself at sea in 1850, having spent 37 years as a missionary to Burma. And his life and and that of his family illustrates this pattern shown in Scripture. If you step into the call of God and missions to participate in this great salvation harvest he has planned, you will likely suffer. We all suffer, of course. That's true. All of us get sick. All of us lose loved ones. All of us die at some point and in some way. But when you enter the mission field, when you participate in this great salvation harvest, there's a greater risk for suffering and in ways that you probably wouldn't have otherwise. And this is part of why, for those of us who stay here and send these three to five individuals or households, we must be diligent to support them in prayer and in finances and in ongoing contact and care. We must do that. And for those of us that do end up going, we must not be under any illusions as to what it might cost, what we might be risking. There is required risk in going. As John Piper once so wonderfully said, the path of God-exalting joy will cost you your life. Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. In other words, it is better to lose your life than to waste it. If you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risks will be high, and your joy will be full. We are not called to avoid a wounded life, but to avoid a wasted life. Some of you will die in the service of Christ. That will not be a tragedy. Treasuring life above Christ is a tragedy. That is the tragedy. And he's right. Even if we suffer and lose our lives, we can do so with steel in our spines, in gladness, in our hearts, for the one who loves us is better than life. He is supremely worthy of any and all risk. He is supremely worthy of any and all labor. He is the God for whom we were created and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. But when we find him, we find rest and joy that endures through any trial or tribulation. And he has sent us in this world to declare the truth of his gospel and he has sent us with the guarantee of its certain success. The question is, will we pray for the Lord to raise up and send laborers to the harvest? Will we send and go, as Adoniram Judson put it, for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for us, for the sake of perishing and immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Will we risk, as he put it, every want 
and kind of distress, degradation, insult, persecution, perhaps a violent death? Do we find him worthy of such? He is worthy. He is supremely worthy. For he has blessed us. God, our God, has blessed us and he has done so so that all the ends of the earth will fear him and they will, it is certain. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for the confidence and certainty we have in your blessing and your pardon and your presence. And we give you thanks for the certainty of this great salvation harvest to come at the end of the age. And so we pray that you would help us to follow the pattern of the cross, to pick up our crosses, to pray, to go, to risk. Raise up these three to five individuals or households. Commission us to pray. Inspire us to pray. Build our faith to pray. And build our faith to send and to go for the glory of your name and the gladness of all the peoples of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.